0: Smith, and this is more than one lesson. Thank you, everybody, for listening. So uh, it's been a while since I've done a a proper episode. Um, Things have been pretty crazy uh, for me as well as for everybody else. Uh, We're all stuck at home and trying to make a go of it. Um, If you are somebody who is able to leave the house for work uh on one hand good for you and on the other maybe not maybe you maybe you would prefer to stay home um uh for those that are wondering cuz i've had a couple people ask me um as a teacher i have been working remotely and it has been uh challenging uh, you have to be able i in my limited experience you have to be able to read the room and, uh, you can sort of sense when you're leaving the students behind and the things that you're saying. And when you do that, you realize, okay, I will now ask them if they're with me, uh, or I will just go back and restate and maybe try to say something that, uh, that connects with the students a little bit more. And over zoom, I'm not really able to do that, but, um, but I'm doing my best just like everybody else and uh, that my semester is coming to an end and I do not know what my summer is going to look like. So I'm taking on various projects and one of those is actually going to be the International Christian Film Festival, which is usually right now. In fact, uh, yeah, if everything uh, had gone the way it's supposed to go, I would actually be in Florida right now. But um, that did not happen. And so it is moved to a purely virtual setting. And so there will be a way to watch films and a way to attend seminars online. And so June 4th, I believe at 10 a.m. Eastern time, which means 7 a.m. my time. Uh, I will be giving a lecture on the 10 movies that every Christian filmmaker should see. And if you're if you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time, then you none, very few of them will be uh, a surprise to you. But nonetheless, if you wanted to, to check that out, uh, you could uh, the the festival offers uh passes to people who just want to check out the lectures uh people who just want to watch the movies um and my documentary Real Redemption the Rise of Christian Cinema is an official selection and I have been nominated for uh, best director of a documentary which is very exciting um and uh, along those lines if anybody does want to check out my documentary it is available at tv.com. um i'm fairly proud of it though don't get me wrong Upon revisiting it, I, all I see uh, are the mistakes and the things that I would do differently. But uh, from what it sounds like, that is pretty standard stuff. Uh, okay, so today we're going to be talking about Drew Goddard's Bad Times at the Ale Royale, uh, which came out in 2018. It was a film that was not widely talked about, and uh, it, it received mostly critical praise, but there were some critics that didn't really care for it. Um It is a long movie. It's a solid two and a half hours. And I know a lot of people thought that uh, maybe that was too long. Uh, As for myself, it was one of my 10 favorite movies of that year. It just really worked for me. And I think one of the reasons is that it surprised me. Um, I went in really expecting... The film to be fun and visually interesting, with some some delightful performances. It's directed by Drew Goddard, uh, who was one of the co-writers uh, and the director of uh, The Cabin in the Woods, and then he was also the creative force behind Daredevil. Uh, he's been putting out stuff that I really like, and so I was I was interested to see this film. And the trailer certainly plays up sort of the the hip, frankly Tarantino esque quality of the movie. And and the film is that Uh, the companion film for today is Tarantino's uh, Pulp Fiction. Um, But as is often the case with Tarantino, you go in expecting one thing and you do get that, but you get that plus much more. Uh, It's very easy to look at somebody like a Tarantino or Drew Goddard, for that matter, and just see what's on the surface to see the, the style and the hip. Uh, well-written dialogue and all that. And and there's nothing wrong with style. Uh, you know, people talk about, oh, well, that movie's just style over substance. And as I've gotten older and uh, and as I've really embraced what film can be, I have come to realize that in some cases, the style is the substance, and that's perfectly fine. Uh, but that is not the case with movies like Pulp Fiction or really any Tarantino film. Um, he uses this style, sense of ironic detachment to show characters that have a lot more going on underneath the surface. If you're willing to, uh, if you're willing to do the work and if they are willing to be vulnerable and it's very much the same situation with bad times at the El Royale, which is not exactly a a chamber piece. It doesn't all take place in one room, but it does take place almost exclusively outside of some flashbacks, um, at a hotel, that is right in the middle, right on the border of Nevada and California, and so the idea is you come into this hotel that, uh, and you can choose to stay on the Nevada side or the California side, and uh, each side is decorated differently, and so there's a there's a uh, a novelty to it, and the film takes place in uh, the 1960s, and. It it is set up like it were uh, like it, like it was like a an Agatha Christie story where uh, several people from very different walks of life with de- very different personalities come to this hotel and uh, craziness ensues, including some murders and uh, those moments. Strange as it may sound, it, they're not necessarily fun. Um, there is a character who's introduced early, and he actually uh dies about halfway through and right before he's killed we actually see a, a glimpse into his personal life and you realize that oh he's you know he wasn't really that bad of a of a person and that he and that this him dying is going to result in in people that love him uh mourning him and uh and that's what I that's that's one of the things that I like about the film is is that dynamic that just when you think you understand how the how these characters are or what the film is, uh, Drew Goddard introduces this other element, and suddenly you start to see them in a deeper way. You start to see them in a more human way, uh, so that even in the midst of all this violence, you can't really. You can't really embrace it the way you could uh, a film that was a little bit more superficial. Instead, it really gives weight to the violence. Um, And I don't really it is a film that features a lot of twists and turns and and a lot of spoilers. And so I don't really want to get that deep into the story, uh, except to say that, as is often the case with Drew Goddard, there are a surprising number of, um, religious overtones. We have a character and this is in the trailer, so it's not a, and you'll see it coming. This one is the least, uh, unexpected twist where Jeff Bridges plays a, a priest, uh, father, Daniel Flynn, who comes to the, the hotel. And you discover that in fact he is impersonating priest and that he isn't really one. So that is not a surprise to anybody. But then we also get uh, these flashbacks. Again, this is in the 1960s. And in many ways, I think this film would be a good companion to uh, Tarantino's 2019 uh, film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, Even though that's not the companion film that I chose. Uh, Because we have a, a, a young woman who is who gets tangled up in a cult that is headed by a character named Billy Lee, played by Chris Hemsworth. And he is very charismatic, obviously like a good looking guy. Uh, and the stuff that he says seems very, it seems very profound. Um, but you also are very aware as is often the case with cults. Uh, you're very aware that the person who benefits most from these people being in his cult is him. He says that he's doing good for other people, but everything eventually comes back to him. Um, and so you have these, these figures that are, one could say false prophets. And one of them, and they, they're both putting on this, this sense of piety in order to benefit themselves. But one of them starts to learn more about what it actually means to be seen this way. Um, but I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, Instead, I uh, right now, I want to talk about just the, the stylistic aspect of it. It really is a beautifully shot film, wonderfully edited, and some really great art direction. You know, if you're going to be staying at this hotel uh, with these characters, it needs to really feel lived in because it's also uh, a hotel that, that has seen better days. Uh, it was this legendary hotel, and now when these people check in, they're the only people that are there. It's just not as popular as it used to be but it is still it is still kept up. And so this is something that that uh, I remember uh, David Bax, my co-host at Battleship Pretension, he mentioned this once. I think he was talking about LA confidential. And it's the kind of thing that you don't that I never really thought about, but he mentioned it and now it's something that is always on my mind when I see a period piece, specifically a period piece that takes place in the last 50 or 60 years is that you know the cars that we drive, it may be 2020 right now, but I am driving a car from 2012. And unless you, you're a very rich person who can always keep up with the latest fashions, always drive the latest car. Most of us are wearing clothes and, and just and driving cars and living in houses that are a little bit older and are going to feel a little bit older. They're not going to feel like the essence of the, the year in which they take place. Um, I always appreciate if there's a, if there's a period piece that takes place in the 1980s or really anytime music is usually used to kind of indicate the, the time period. And there are movies that very clearly announce that. And then there are some that choose to some directors who, who choose to go with the deep cuts, because if somebody were to make a movie um, that takes place in 2020, they wouldn't, only play the songs that people in the future remember from this year. They, you know, you can't always guess what's going to be remembered or what's going to be a hit and what won't. And so I feel like the really great period pieces are ones that acknowledge that, yeah, certain characters are going to be dressed a certain way. They're not going to be dressed up to date and they won't drive that kind of car. And the architecture is not going to be of that moment. Um, and so with bad times at the El Royale, uh, both with, again, how the characters, characters are dressed but also the hotel itself it is meant to be a luxury hotel that is no longer popular so between those two things you have to watch it's it's a bit of a a bit of a fine line that you have to walk. And I think drew Goddard and his production designer really do a great job of making this place seem like, Oh, this has quickly become a dive, but I can understand how in the right circumstances a few years ago, this would have been a really amazing, uh, place to stay. And, and it's like I said, it's shot beautifully. I enjoy spending time in this location, even if it is potentially dangerous. Um, and as far as that dangerous aspect goes, another thing that I like, I mentioned a character that is, that is killed about halfway through the movie, and you don't think that's really going to happen, but the death of this person means that anybody can die at any time. This is not a film that is very precious about keeping its characters around. Uh, instead, it wants to keep you on your toes and recognize that, well, these characters... They don't know that they're the leads in a movie and they only care about who could hurt them and they need to protect themselves and all of that sort of thing. And so uh, so the, Drew Goddard, as which is expected again, he he's the creative force behind Daredevil, which is one of the better shows of the last few years, in my opinion. And he keeps you paying attention. And there are several moments. This is a very funny movie, but it is also an extremely suspenseful one and very um, very stressful at times. Uh, you pay attention, and there are certain scenes where a character will have a gun aimed at them, and you're like, "This person might die right now," and sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. And so, that I think is is a testament to to the writing and the directing and the performances, because. At this point, we we go into a movie and we feel like we know what to expect, and we know that okay, that person's probably not going to die because they're played by this person and they're the lead. And so, uh, this moment where they are their lives are being threatened, well, I guess uh, I guess we'll all just have to act as though that's suspenseful, even though none of us are really that concerned. Uh, Bad times at the El Royale is not like that. Uh, it could be and if you start to have that attitude, it's like, well, you know, I mean, this guy is the lead character. And so, oh, OK, he's gone. That is OK. That's crazy. So. Um, so it is in many ways just a really well constructed film. And you really certainly in the third act, you really don't know where we're headed. And the the direction that we're headed is one that I really love both. Stylistically and narratively and thematically, uh, and I do want to talk about some of the the performances. Um, Jeff Bridges plays Father Daniel Flynn. He is a character. It's Jeff Bridges has become. A character actor who is a little bit predictable himself, you kind of know the type of voice he's going to do, the way he's going to carry himself. Uh, but it is a testament to him as an actor that he is able to find new beats to play within familiar characters and within familiar characterizations. And so, he's tremendous fun to watch. And then, uh, Dakota Johnson is an actress that I'm a little bit less familiar with, uh, but she. Really brings an edge to her character, and you really don't know what to expect from her. John Hamm is is plays a a character named Laramie Sullivan, and he is a very, um, very verbose character who is meant to be sort of annoying and also the comic relief a little bit. And let's see, but. Well, and I talked about Chris Hemsworth a little bit already. he It's a supporting role, and it's a pretty villainous role, and he is so great. I mean, it is, you hate him. You really hate him, but he is so watchable, and it's the kind of thing that when you see him, you believe that someone would follow him in, in a cult, in a time when you are searching for some kind of meaning in your life and, and maybe you're not getting along with your family or whatever. And then he comes along and not only is he a good looking guy, uh, but just the way he so effortlessly carries himself and seems to have answers and ask questions that you've never thought of before. He absolutely seems like he could be a cult leader. And in that regard, he's kind of terrifying. Um, you know, a lot of us, because of the way he looks and because of his background in the MCU uh, and this new movie Extraction, which I didn't see, he ha- he definitely has leading man looks uh, and he c- and he can carry a movie and he can be very funny, all of that. But you see him in, in something like this and you really start to understand what. Chris Hemsworth is capable of. And I really hope that in the future, he takes more roles like this roles that are risky because he throws himself into it. He is, it is not a self-conscious performance. He is not winking at us. He's not trying to secretly make us like him, even though he's playing a bad guy. No, he plays this guy, with a hundred percent commitment, even though he knows that we do not like him and we are rooting actively against him. Uh, so that was it's. It's not necessarily that it was a surprise. I like Chris Hemsworth as an actor, but I don't think I knew that he had this type of performance in him. Um, and then the other surprise is I was largely unfamiliar with Cynthia Erivo, uh, uh, who was just uh, nominated for an Oscar for Harriet. And she's been in a number of other things as well. She was in that movie Widows, which I didn't particularly care for, but thought she was pretty good in. Uh, And she's marvelous in this. She plays a woman who is is a singer and is down on her luck, and she comes into the hotel. And she, partially because of the time period, but also just because of what she has lived through, she's a little bit beaten down. And that's not to say that she is weak, but... She has to sort of find her strength throughout the film, and she is—this is definitely an ensemble film. It's hard to say if there is officially a lead, but if there's one, it's probably her, but she doesn't establish herself as the lead until about halfway through, maybe even two-thirds of the way through, uh, so she was a nice surprise and I didn't see Harriet. I frankly, I heard that it wasn't particularly good, but I hear that everybody really liked her in it, which is not, uh, not surprising. So I'm excited to see where her career goes, uh, in the future. And then you have Lewis Pullman, who is actor Bill Pullman's son. And you'll know because he looks a lot like him and he plays this character, Miles, who is like the lone employee on duty at the El Royale. And he has a past and he seems kind of squirrely and you don't trust him. And Lewis Pullman, this this is this to me was like such a such a wonderful surprise because he has to act alongside John Hamm and Jeff Bridges and. Actors with a little bit more experience who are giving bigger performances and he has to stand, not stand up to them. He's not that type of character, but he needs to stand alongside them. And there are moments where you have to pay attention to him, not the other characters. And there have been movies in the past where these, you know, lesser known actors and granted Lewis Pullman is from a show business family, but uh, lesser actors, lesser known actors turn out to be lesser actors and they just get swallowed up by the art direction or the writing or the other characters. And Lewis Pullman does not do that. It is a really beautiful performance, one that is suspicious and emotional and vulnerable. And you, there are times you don't trust him and other times you feel like he's the only one you can trust. Uh, it really is a, a special performance. And, uh, and I was very, it was, it was a delightful surprise, uh, in a film where I expected to really be focusing on Jeff Bridges most of the time. Uh, these other characters po- played by Cynthia Rivo and, and Lewis Pullman really, um, I wouldn't say they steal the movie cause it's not quite that, but they definitely establish themselves as like this, we are par- part of this ensemble. Um, so yeah, uh, if you, I- I'm going to, Probably spoil a couple of things here as I talk about the film narratively and thematically. But if you haven't seen the film, and a lot of people didn't, seek it out. It is a marvelous movie. I, I worry that I over that I'm overhyping it because a lot of people, or at least some notable people, did not care for it, and it just worked for me uh, on a lot of levels. And as I said, it could be because I wasn't expecting it to be what it was. Um, but I think if you're a fan of this show and you enjoy uh, genre movies that wind up incorporating some pretty deep thematic elements, I think you will like uh, this film quite a bit. Um, and it's a film that actually features pretty heavily into my documentary, if that gives you any indication of uh, as to how overt it is. Uh, and as I said... Um, if you've seen daredevil, then it will come as no surprise that this is a film that very, this is not a film that deals in symbolism. It deals very overtly with issues of religion, specifically Christian religion, I guess maybe more specifically Catholicism. And uh, and yeah, it just, it makes me want to talk to Drew Goddard and, and ask him like, okay, so what, uh, why are you incorporating this into your movies and is this just a way of exploring your own faith? Like a, like a Paul Schrader or Martin Scorsese, or are you trying to do something a little bit more not to suggest that he's, he made bad times at the Royal to convert anybody. It's not that kind of movie, but there are, there are really meaningful moments. There's a moment where Jeff Bridges, again, he is, he's playing, he's acting like this priest. And in fact, he's very much the opposite, but as sometimes happens, this is something we saw in the movie, uh, Beckett in 1960. I want to say two, it might be 64. Now I don't recall, but anyway, uh, and it's about Thomas Beckett who was, um, who was named, uh, Archbishop of, uh, Canterbury by his friend, the King. And he, and he was named that so that he would let the King get away with anything he wanted. But And that was his plan. And then he becomes Archbishop and starts to suddenly take everything a little bit more seriously, much to the chagrin of his friend. It's a great movie, Beckett. Uh, It stars Peter O'Toole as uh, King Henry II, and that's actually, he played that character twice, but it wasn't a sequel situation. And it features Richard Burton as um, Thomas Beckett. It's It's a really great movie. And similarly, it... Bad Times at the Royale features this character who, while not officially a priest, is treated by some other characters as though he were a priest. And he suddenly realizes, especially when uh, we are confronted with the Chris Hemsworth character, where the the Jeff Bridges character is confronted with this idea that, yeah, this is something that people need. Uh, People need this type of redemption. People need this type of hope and and they need the type of hope that will not prey upon them the way Chris Hemsworth is. He is absolutely providing his followers hope but only to the extent that it uh, benefits him. And so uh, the film really does seem to be Uh, An unexpected meditation on the nature of belief and this idea that it really it really matters what we put our belief in, because uh, just because something is giving you this sense of hope, that doesn't mean that it is not nefarious. And I know plenty of people would say that the church, that uh, Christianity, just like any other religion or just like any cult, um, is is giving people hope, but only so that it can gain power. Obviously, I don't believe that because as we've talked about on this show before, you have to look at who is who's the leader, who's the person in charge. And if you look at Christianity, the person in charge, it's a weird way of putting it that way, but uh, is Jesus. And this is somebody who who uh, gladly gave up power uh, in order to uh, to better take care of his followers and and provide hope And redemption for his followers, as opposed again to the Chris Hemsworth character, who would never give up anything uh, of himself in order to uh, to help out his followers. In fact, quite the opposite; he requires that they give things up for him. So, um, but it's not merely this idea of where you putting, who are you putting your hope in? But it's also the the idea of being transformed. This goes back to what I was talking about with Beckett and with the Jeff Bridges character, is that. He realizes that, yeah. If if I am seen as holy, then maybe I can try to uh, aspire to that. And it's the, it it put me in mind uh, of that verse that says like, act as though you have faith, and it will be granted to you. Um, but it also speaks to me of this idea that a lot of people actually are not that comfortable with, regardless of what they might say, which is that uh, anybody can be redeemed regardless of what they've done. And in some cases, regardless of what they are doing now, uh, many people, Christian or otherwise, are At this very moment in the in the midst of committing some kind of larger sin that many people would condemn and and rightfully so they would condemn. But at the same time, uh, Jesus love is extended to that person in the midst of that negative sinful act. Um, And so we have these characters in bad times at the El Royale who have done bad things. And in some cases they are at the El Royale hotel in order to do bad things. Uh, But we find ourselves in this, uh, in this unique situation where hope and faith and redemption are called for. And it, it inspires characters to want to be that thing, to want to be better. And this is what brings us, of course, into the companion film, which is Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction, which came out in 1994. Now, my guess is you've probably seen it, and I know I've talked about it on the show before. But, you know, it's a film that that features a lot of different storylines, uh, but the our two main characters are these hitmen? One is played by John Travolta, the other by Samuel L. Jackson. And even then, um, of those two, the John Travolta character is a little bit more of the lead, uh, because one of the stories that we follow is we spend a lot of time with him and Samuel Jackson's character is not even in the picture. Uh, but even if Vincent Vega might be, that's the John Travolta character, even if he's the lead, Jules Winfield, played by Samuel L. Jackson, he is the heart. He is the one that actually declares um, declares the themes of the film. And we also get some of that with the relationship between Bruce Willis and Ving Rhames and this idea of stepping outside yourself to to actually to actually love your enemies, um, but it really is in the in the final moments of the film with Samuel Jackson confronting Tim Roth that you get some genuinely beautiful moments, and moments that are, of course, laced with profanity, so I can't really quote them here verbatim, which is a shame, because it is a wonderfully written screenplay. Uh, that is the sole Oscar that the movie won that year was Best uh, Original Screenplay. Um, and to me, a lot of people, including people whose film opinions I agree with, uh, they actually don't like Pulp Fiction that much. And they say that it is, as I was talking about with bad times, um, that it's just all style and it's just kind of this hip detachment and pop culture references and all of that. And to me, I guess I could see where somebody's coming from. Uh, but when you get to that last scene in the coffee shop with Samuel Jackson, it's like that, that. That throws that all. That throws that out, um, because he he's in this position where he was a hitman who witnesses what he thought was a miracle, and his fellow hitman, played by uh, John Travolta, saw, saw no such miracle. He just sees it as a as a crazy coincidence or just a a lucky break. But Samuel Jackson, he sees God. He sees purpose in the midst of this very unlikely uh, miracle, and so he immediately thinks, you know what, I can't do this anymore. I can't be somebody who kills people for a living because God has confronted me. And now my job is to go out. I mean, the way he puts it is funny where he says, you know, I'm just going to walk the earth and get in adventures and that sort of thing. Like, uh, like a cane from Kung Fu. So there's the pop culture hipness and all that. But, um, But he, and then he, he even gets upset when, uh, when Vincent, uh, blasphemes and, you know, uses the Lord's name in vain. And so he's, he's doing his best to try to, to, to get on the, on the right path, even though he's fairly new at it. Um, and as sometimes ha- I wouldn't, it's hard to say they're like, Oh, and then Jules becomes a Christian. You know, it's not so much that as it is, uh, we don't see him fall on his knees and say, you know, the sinner's prayer or whatever, but, um, but he is, he's, he wants to walk a more holy path. And by the way, turning himself in for the multiple murders he's committed over the years is not part of that path, but maybe it will be at some point. Um, you know, this is still Pulp Fiction. It's not a, uh, it is not, God's not dead. Um, But uh, but as as often happens when somebody decides I want to do the right thing, they are immediately confronted (laughs) with the wrong thing or more specifically the thing that they would have done in the past. And in Pulp Fiction, uh, he's uh, Jules and Vincent are at a coffee shop. And then the coffee shop is uh, about to get robbed by Amanda Plummer and Tim Roth. Tim Roth comes up, puts a gun in Samuel L. Jackson's face. Samuel Jackson quickly disarms him and put his, uh, puts his gun in Tim Roth's face. And in the past, he would not have hesitated to shoot this guy immediately. But as he says, you caught me in a transitional period and I don't want to kill you. And he he starts to dissect this Bible verse that he previously would quote right before killing somebody. Uh, and incidentally the verse itself, as it is uh, said in the movie does not actually exist. Um, it is a very, very, very loose translation of, of the verse, but, uh, but he would just say it. And by his own admission, it's like, ah, he just thought it was this cold blooded thing that he could say, but now he's really thinking about it. And it's all about being the shepherd and it's all about, uh, Oppressing the innocent and, and the shepherd trying to keep that from happening. And there's this wonderful moment where he's talking about all the different ways that he can interpret the, the verse. And he talks about being like, you know, Hey, I, I, I like to think that I'm the shepherd and he smiles and then he pauses for a moment. It's my fa- It's one of my favorite acting moments in any film ever. Samuel Jackson is reflecting on what he wishes were true. And he says, he goes, he pauses and says, I like that. And then he, his face drops and he says, but that's not the truth. The truth is you're the weak and I'm the tyranny of evil men. And then he says, but I'm trying, I'm trying real hard to be the shepherd. And it's so beautiful. And. It's it's the kind of thing we see it in Bad Times at the El Royale with Father Flynn or would-be Father Flynn. Uh, we see it here with Jules and we see it every time somebody decides to follow Christ and we see it throughout our own lives. We like to think that we're good people. We like to think that we've got it all worked out, but that's not true. The truth is we are broken and we are fallen and we are selfish and prideful and sinful and all of us are and i'm not trying to say like hate yourself it's not that it's a realization that th- this whole thing this life thing is bigger than us and w- and we are not able to do this on our own because when it comes right down to it we are going to fall back into our old ways and we can try to be the shepherd and there's nothing wrong with that at all but when it comes right down to it what happens when we fail at being the shepherd and that is where the real shepherd. That is where Jesus comes in and the redemption comes in and the constant grace and love that is offered to us. The Bible is full of people that made terrible decisions their entire life. And those are the people that Jesus looks at and says, I want them because at their core, they know what they're doing is wrong. They know that they do not in a way, they don't deserve love. They don't deserve redemption, which is precisely why I'm going to offer it to them. And so uh, I'm going to read uh, a fairly um, long stretch here. This is uh, Acts 9 verses 1 through 19. So settle in while I read the Bible. So, all right, Acts 9, verses 1 through 19. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name." So, all right, Uh, if you, my guess is you're familiar with who Saul is, he would uh, change his name to Paul and then write the various uh, letters that you would find in the New Testament. And in those letters, one of the things that he talks about is the thorn in his side. And this thing that is causing him tremendous pain and that he keeps asking God to remove it. And then God says, my grace is sufficient for you, which is to say he doesn't remove the thorn. Now, a lot of people have uh, debated what that thorn might be. If it was a literal thorn or if it was like a physical ailment or it could have been struggles. It could have been temptation. It could have been sin. And Paul saying, please take this from me uh, because I, I hate it and I can't remove it myself. And God is saying, don't worry about it. My grace is sufficient for you. And so, you know, you have these, these characters in these movies trying to follow God and undoubtedly they're going to fail. Hopefully in the case of Jules, they don't fail to the degree of, uh, of killing anybody, but they're going to fail. Like we all fail. And just because they make that initial, uh, that initial commitment that doesn't mean that they are going to be perfect, just as we are not perfect. Um, and in and the idea that God can use somebody like Saul who was not only a, a really bad guy, but was actively persecuting Christians, and that God said, yes, that is that guy is going to be perfect for what I want to do. Um, and that paul, Saul, when he became Paul, would speak, in a way that a lot of people these days don't really like, um, because he speaks with the boldness of somebody who was, a, was a zealot, uh, earlier. Um, but it's worth paying attention to. Um, let's see, what is the, yeah, God describes Paul as this man. It says, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. That is uh, not a thing to be dismissed. A lot of people tend to dismiss Paul because they don't like a lot of the stuff that he says, but it is in the Bible. And uh, if, we, if, he, if Paul is indeed God's chosen instrument, I'd say it's important to listen to what he says. But that's a, that's a side argument. The thing that I want to talk about is, is the way that in, encountering God transforms us. And it doesn't matter what we've done in the past. And it doesn't matter in the case of, of the character from bad times at the El Royale. it doesn't matter that, uh, that maybe we've been pretending to be pious. We've been pretending to be holy, but in actuality, we know that we haven't been. God can still use that. Uh, if we, if we let him, and once we feel that touch like Jules did, uh, it is our job to follow that and, to, to follow where God leads. We will stray, whether it be in sin or in just general selfishness or in laziness or in judgment of other people, what, or ourselves, um, you know, we, that will happen, but God does not give up on us. Uh, so we should not give up on ourselves. And I say that as someone who I give up on myself pretty regularly because I'm so, I'm so aware of the thorn uh, to go back to that that idea that Paul was talking about, I'm so aware of the things that I keep screwing up, my constant mistakes, my constant sin, uh, and God is saying, hey, yeah, obviously you should try to do better, but at the same time, this is not separating you from me. My grace is, is perfectly sufficient for you, so let's just keep going. And so, you know, as you listen to this, you might be somebody— who feels like a fraud, spiritual, professional, emotional, whatever it is, you might feel like I I am not what people think I am. Uh, Just as father Flynn is not what people think he is, but God is saying like, that's true. Yes. But you know what? You can be, if you follow me, I can make you this thing. And those promises are, Sometimes a little bit scary, but I think they're important to remember because if God can use Saul, if God can use, and I realize that uh, Bad Times at the Hill Royale and Pulp Fiction are not exactly the same as scripture, but if he can use these thieves and these murderers and the Bible is littered with people that do the wrong things, even when they are trying to do the right thing, you know, look no further than King David to see somebody who was called a man after God's own heart. And then after that did some pretty terrible things. You know, the Bible is full of people that need redemption and they need love and they need for need forgiveness. And they get it because God is always offering it and offering it in a transformative way. So, uh, so if you're feeling that, if you are feeling like, uh, some kind of misfit who cannot be used because of the things you've done because of the things that you are i would just encourage you to watch these movies and enjoy them because they are very enjoyable uh and read these verses and reflect on god being able to use whoever he wants to use Uh, he is not limited by well he's not limited by anything you know if he can create the heavens and the earth something I have to remind myself of is like, he can do anything. Do I, am I really so are my issues so big that he is limited by them? Of course not. So, uh, and that's the case with you as well. So hopefully that is an encouraging message for you. Uh, because it is for me, even as I say it, I know that what I'm saying is, is pointing back to the Bible and I myself need to be pointed back to the Bible a lot. So, uh, so yeah, check out Bad Times at the El Royale. It is just a wonderful movie and the more people that see it, the better. Uh, in the meantime, you're welcome to comment, uh, on this episode, uh, feel free to weigh in, uh, on with your thoughts on, on either of these movies or other movies that are similar that you feel like people would enjoy. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at more lessons. You can always like us on Facebook and, uh, don't forget to check out my, my documentary. The more people see it, uh, the more likely it is that I might be able to make another one of these things sometime down the line. Um, and then do check out the international Christian film festival. Sounds like they've got some pretty good, uh, seminars or I guess webinars, whatever you want to call them, uh, along with, uh, with mine, I think there'll be a lot that you, that you might enjoy. So, so check that out. And, uh, in the meantime, I don't know when the next episode will be or what it will be about. I will try to make it sooner rather than later. And if you have any suggestions of movies that you think I should talk about, please do leave them in the comments. Or you can email me, tyler at morethanonelesson.com. But uh, thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll get you next time. Bye.